I can remember because for the welfare state for my parents was new and they weren't particularly socialist or anything. They were ordinary middle class or lower middle class couple. But they just thought it was amazing. And I remember my father saying to me so proudly, he said, do you know, Jacqueline, you could never starve in this country. You could never starve in this country because the state will look after you. And if he came back now and saw food banks, he would be utterly devastated. This is the fifth episode of the Disobedient Buildings podcast, an HSC-funded project at the University of Oxford. Our focus is on the everyday lives of people living in aging blocks of flats in three European countries, the UK, Romania and Norway. My name is Inge Daniels and today I will take you to London, where I speak with Jackie Peacock, Director of Advice for Renters an organization that supports renters in London. We will discuss the dire situation of many renters in London today. We were originally set up by um, renters themselves, people with private landlords, who've always had a pretty rough deal and they came together over 30 years ago because they wanted to work collectively to fight for better rights. Tenants are always at the core of our work and they're always, because over the years there was less and less advice available for private tenants, we started developing a specialist legal advice team and that remains the core of our work. But because renters get very little support anywhere else. And, you know, we realise that somebody comes to us because there's a hole in the roof, the rain's coming in, the landlord won't fix it. We will deal with that. We'll force the landlord to repair the roof. But if that's all we do, then in a few months later, they'll be back with some other problem. So we try and help people in the round. We have developed, uh, for example, a lot of financial inclusion services. So you know, if they're living, if they're on a low income, they're living at the bottom end of the market, the conditions are very poor, they're probably struggling to pay their rents, they may need help with sorting out welfare benefits, or just help with budgeting, basically, or how ideas to how they might be able to improve their income. And similarly, we look at fuel poverty, because Again, homes at the lower end of the sectors are very often the least energy efficient and tenants are not only struggling to pay the rent, but also struggling to pay the gas and electricity bills. So we provide services in that area. And we also have a brilliant and really valuable team of volunteer mentors who we train to work one-to-one with our clients. So our solicitors may help them go to court, defend their possession or whatever it is. We may help them to challenge fuel bills and switch to a different, a cheaper tariff or provider. But then a mentor will help people through that process. So it could be anything from helping them get all their paperwork together for the solicitor to helping them if, say, we force the landlord to put in central heating, the mentor will show them how to work the thermostat you know, or 
behavioural changes which would help them to reduce their energy bills further. And would you say, is there a particular kind of constituency? Is it a certain age group or is it all across the board, people you see coming? It is across the board, but most of our work is done under a contract with legal aid agencies. So people have two hurdles to get legal aid. One is it's means tested and so people are on a low income and also the legal aid contract is restricted in scope and ridiculously it's actually the scope is basically people in crisis so in a you know I sometimes say if somebody comes to us because they've got cracks in their ceiling under legal aid we'd have to say, well, come back in a year or two's time when your ceiling has collapsed and then we can help you. <laughs> Quite stupid. You know, a little dispute with the landlord, come back in a year's time when he started procession proceedings, then we can help you. But fortunately, we don't have to say that because we, we do get other grant funding from charitable trusts to, to help us, to, to enable us to deal with those issues that aren't, that fall outside the scope of legal aid. But but nevertheless, we are a charity, of course, and so we are we we exist to help people who are in poverty. the The area that where we're based is is the London Borough of Brent, which is one of the several boroughs in Brent where the majority of residents are from Black and ethnic minority communities. So they are the majority of our our clients. It's, it's very, it's fascinating the boroughs in London and how different they are. Indeed, absolutely. There is poverty everywhere in London, I think, as well. The city does attract very rich people, but, but also not just rich people who want to live in London, but rich people who want to invest in London. So they may have no other interest. And that is, you know, traditionally... And sadly, it seems to be increasing that London is seen as a tax haven because our taxes are, are are geared more towards helping rich people than poor people. One of the reasons that there is is such poverty and such problems with people being forced to live in poor housing is that rich people just invest in London in property and they're not even bothered whether it's occupied or not. So we will have some of the most expensive property in London, which is just sitting there empty, while some people are actually sleeping on the streets because they have nowhere at all. I mean, if you come as a tourist and you're looking around uh, central London, um, you'll probably be very impressed because it is a beautiful city. Not only a lot of historical buildings that are still used, still well-maintained, but also a lot of new developments. You know, all the new development may look very nice, but it's actually making the problem worse. The impact is, of course, that it is forcing up prices even more and forcing communities who may have lived in the area for a long time, or they are gradually being forced out. The, the, the current government is very, very keen on promoting home ownership and of course, some people want to own their homes. We're not saying that they shouldn't want to or they shouldn't be able to, but it is completely distorting the market. And, and for, for decades now, we've had 
uh, social housing tenants have had the right to buy. And of course, all the ones who could afford to buy are buying the better properties, which is just adding to the housing crisis. Going back to private developers, um, what we've realised unpacking it, one of the reasons that they're reluctant to provide more is not really because the scheme wouldn't, the figures wouldn't add up. It's because private homeowners do not want to live near social housing tenants. And therefore, if the developer builds too much social housing, that will lower the value of the houses that are building to sell to owner-occupiers. When anybody I talk to says it's building more social housing is going to alleviate some of this pressure everywhere. There is absolutely no question at all that we need a massive building program for social housing. But I have to say that that isn't the sole answer, partly because if we did have a building program of that magnitude, we wouldn't be able to meet our carbon emission targets. But also, if you look across the board, there is actually enough housing. I mean, the, the, so I, I read the other day some research, which I think I think it's something like 53% of, of households are under-occupying. And I think for every, for every head of the population, there's more than one bedroom, you know, something like 2.3 bedrooms or something like that. So and we also have lots of other empty buildings. And I think now is an opportunity because one thing that seems to be generally agreed is that people aren't going to be all going back to their office full time as they were before. There are going to be a lot of buildings that are underused. And I know that we need to be really cautious about trying to simply convert, say, office or industrial buildings into housing. It doesn't always work. Some may have to be demolished, but the land is still there and, and could be used for social housing. I think one of the things that probably is, if not unique, it is deeply, deeply embedded in English culture in a way that it isn't in, in with other nationalities is our class culture. It has, you know, we don't talk about class anymore, but it has not gone away. That has not gone away. And housing is your, I mean, you know, the private rented sector has really changed very little since feudal times, <laughs> since you had the Lord of the Manor that owned all the land and that was probably gifted to him by the sovereign. And they built, you know, small homes for the people who did work the land for them. And even today, we still talk about the landlord. You're, you're right, that class structure is still inherently there. You see that everywhere as well, Nora, I agree. But I, I will move on a bit. So the participants that I'm working with live in, as I told you earlier, in these blocks that were built during the 60s and 70s. So I thought it might be interesting for you uh, to look at the photos first. And I wonder if you could just describe these blocks for us and perhaps um, give us your first impressions, just if you saw these blocks, what you would uh, think about them. From the outside, they look okay. 
probably depends largely on the, the maintenance, whether there's planned, adequate plan management and adequate reactive procedures to deal with problems that individual tenants have. And I just, as an example, I, I've given you one uh, person who's Andrew, who lives in this block in Soho, but he's kind of talking about uh, maintenance issues. One is leaks, which have come on a lot. And the second one is construction around their block, which is going on for years. When I first started working in housing, local authority housing officers would have, each officer would probably have 40, 60 tenants on their patch. And they would be able to visit them regularly. They would know each other. They'd form a relationship. You know, they would actually call and ask if anything needed being done. You know, <clears throat> Over the years, it was cut and cut. So they now I don't know how many they have, probably hundreds, each officer, you know, partly because there's the opportunity to save money and, and, and also because funding cuts have been forced to economise. So it, it is largely automated service now. So, and I was really shocked when I tried to ring a housing officer on behalf of a client, this is a few years ago now, it's been like this for ages, and you can't, oh, you can't speak directly to a housing officer. You know, I mean, it just, the phones are just not set up. You know, they're set up to prevent you being able to speak to your housing officer. So everything has to be done online, which is, again, if you, you know, if people are older or they, don't have broadband or access to the internet. That's a huge problem for people. And everything goes through a really bureaucratic system, which is completely dehumanized. And what's more is less efficient. You know, I mean, I was speaking to a, a tenant the other day. It is temporary accommodation, but it's managed by a housing association. She reported that her cooker was defective last October and they sent someone round to condemn it and she's still waiting for a replacement. And this is a, a woman with four young children. I suppose that there are some savings, but there are also costs because if you have your that real human relationship between your housing officer and the tenant, if the tenant's just lost their job or if they're struggling to pay the rent, they're going to tell you that. And you're going to be able to help them to budget or make some arrangement or make sure they're claiming benefits, whatever it is, at an early stage. Well, now the debts are just going to mount. Other people have told me this kind of the very quick turnover of staff, if there is staff. And, and frankly, I think the people have good intentions. Often people care, the individuals, but everything is outsourced. You kind of, the, the system doesn't allow empathy, basically. And, and this man as well, it's, he's one, because the other issue is in London, of course, there is the repair to the building, but then having no control on the area around you, what happens as well. And, and most people in, in blocks, they're completely worried about redevelopments coming. I mean, I've been working directly with our black communities on a project called Fairer Housing. And the aim of it is really to help the people who are hardest hit, who are in the worst housing, 
who are the victims of the housing crisis to actually understand the reasons for it and the fact that it isn't inevitable and to help them to speak directly for themselves to the people who have the power to make the radical systemic changes that we need to put things right. The things that families in the worst accommodation are saying, whether the homeless in temporary accommodation are really poor conditions. One of the reasons that they want to be somewhere settled and have a rent they can afford is because they have, like anyone else, aspirations. They don't want to be on benefits all their life. They want to work. Some of them are studying with the hope that eventually they may be in a position where they can get a reasonable job, which gives them job satisfaction. And also they can bring up the family in the way that they want to. And yet everything conspires to stop them doing that. I assume even the people you've been working with, they might not live in blocks, but as you said, some of these issues are the same, but also whether you have experience with the pandemic, whether health and well-being, whether there has been a change or as the situation got even more desperate for people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there is no, it, it's no coincidence that Brent has got a high black population, a high disadvantaged population, and it has, I think, the second or third highest number of COVID deaths. But it, it, it's linked with the house. I mean, we know that if you live in a cold, damp home, you're more likely to get, you're, you have a lower immune system and you're more likely to suffer respiratory disease. On your website that you said, and I, I just quote a little bit, you said that one of your goals is to transform the renting sector, private renting sector through legal advice uh, as well as to campaigning and telling policymakers what the problems are and what they what they can do to solve them. I think that you know at a local level we have a good relationship with the local authority, and I think we probably have some influence. Probably not anything like as much as we'd like, and probably more so in some areas than others. I think um, one really good example of forward thinking, if you like, uh, what Brent did is set up community hubs where, which are run by both Brent staff and the voluntary sector. You know, the people who come don't know whether it's council voluntary sector who's helping them. It's just that the hub and it's, it's really open. Everyone works together uh, outside of pandemic before that. It was just a drop-in. Anybody could walk in who needed advice. They'd be dealt with by the most appropriate people. They were, you know, in a way, it's very much echoes the way advice for renters works. And it sees people first and foremost. It sees the person and their potential. And the hub really echoes that kind of approach. But on the other hand, then we do get frustrated that local authorities are not given the resources or the strategic input into using their powers as effectively as they could to improve housing conditions. Because I'm so old, I can remember what it was like before. You know, when I was 18, I went to do my au pair stint in Paris. That was the first time I saw people sleeping rough on the streets. And I really remember saying, 
thank God that could never happen in London because we had a real welfare state. Now, if somebody had come along, one government one day and said, right, in our election manifesto, we're going to rip up the welfare state, they would never have got elected. But it's been salami slice. So every single little slice that people haven't noticed, we don't have a welfare state in this country anymore. That's why I am bringing the people who are suffering now to get them to understand this isn't inevitable. We could have a welfare state again. Thank you for listening to the Disobedient Buildings podcast, edited by Anna Anderson and produced by Jack Super. If you want to hear more, go to our website at www disobedientbuildings.com or search for a podcast where you normally find your podcasts. In the next episode, Gabriela Niculescu takes you to Bucharest to speak with Ilanka Poun Constantinescu, lecturer at Ion Minku University of Architecture and Urbanism in Bucharest. Is Bucharest a shrinking city 